If you have your Bibles, will you open them to Galatians chapter 2? And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. And the title of this morning's message is The Marks of Grace. The Marks of Grace. When you've arrived there in your Bibles, will you stand as we read God's Word together? Galatians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 10. This is what Paul writes. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now from those recognized as important What they weren't were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. So we are continuing on in our series through the book of Galatians. And this entire series has been entitled Getting Back to Grace, Getting Back to Grace. We've tagged it that because as we look at the book of Galatians, what we ultimately see Paul doing is calling the churches in Galatia to get back to grace. And again, the title of this morning sermon is The Marks of Grace, The Marks of Grace. Of grace, And as we have been discussing this book thus far, I have tried to make it plain to you. I've tried to just make it as clear as possible, this reality that there is a real temptation for us as individuals and for us even as a church, just like there was a temptation for every believer and there's been a temptation for every church, but there is this real temptation for us to stray from Grace, as we read the story of the churches in Galatia, we're not reading an isolated instance, something that happened to these churches but couldn't ever happen to anyone else. The same temptation that was present for them is also present for us, this temptation to stray from grace. And we need grace. We believe that we are saved by grace. That's Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. But the amazing thing about grace is that we don't just rely on it for our salvation. It's not just this one-hit wonder, and then we don't have to think about grace anymore. No, we also rely on grace as the foundation for our entire walk with Jesus. When Paul writes to Titus, 
Uh, in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So grace brings about salvation, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, This grace also, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So not only does grace save us, but grace is what we rely on to make it safely through this world. In other words, we want to be marked by grace in all that we are, in all that we say, and all that we do, so that we can say, like Paul says in Romans 6, 14, that we are in all things under grace, that we are under grace. Now, here's what we have to reckon with. This does not come naturally to us. It does not come naturally to us to be marked by grace. And because of that, we have to cling to grace. We have to fight to cling to grace. And in those moments when we falter and in those moments when we fail, we have to fight to get back to grace. The very thing that Paul is calling these churches in Galatia, in Galatia to return to, to the grace of God. And if that is the case, that it is not natural for us to cling to grace, it is not natural for us to be marked by grace, then we want to constantly be watching ourselves, constantly evaluating ourselves to make sure that we are living under grace. So the question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to be marked by grace? And in our sermon this morning, I want to offer you five marks of grace by which we can evaluate ourselves as individuals and by which we can also evaluate ourselves as a, a local church, a part of the collective body of Christ. And, and we can look and see, is there evidence of God's grace? Are these marks of grace present in our own lives? Are they present in the life of this church? Because again, we want to be marked by grace. But before we can jump into those marks of grace, I want to make sure that we understand what is going on in the text that not only that we just read, but what's just kind of been going on in, in the book in general. So if you remember the context of the book, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. He's writing to them because they have strayed from grace. They have deviated from the truth of the gospel that Paul has taught to them, and they've fallen away from the gospel. They've fallen away from the message that he himself proclaimed to them. So they have bought into deception. So what's happened is Judaizers have come in, and they're basically proclaiming that in order to be a Christian, you have to actually keep the law as well. So we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but, but ultimately what Judaizers, see, Judaizers, Judaizers claimed to be Christians. They did claim, they recognized, at least verbally, that Jesus did what he said he did. They believed in Jesus, but what these Judaizers did was they added to the gospel, right? So they, they basically said, well, you can be a Christian, but if you're not a Jew, you can't be a Christian. So in order to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. And that's where the problem has come in. So a lot of Gentiles are being told that, well, you can be a Christian, but your first stop on the way to Christianity is Judaism. So you have to keep the law first. You have to get circumcised. You have to honor the Mosaic law, and then you can be a Christian. 
And so that's what they've been proclaiming to these churches. And the scary thing is that the churches in Galatia had bought in. And so they've bought into this lie, but they've also bought into the lie taught by the Judaizers that Paul's a fake apostle. So the message that he's preaching isn't a valid message because he's not a real apostle. And while all of this is going on, the churches are also facing other struggles. So they're facing external hardships and persecution and trials. And they, as we've already established, have given into a real fear of man. They just want to please people at this point. And so we called that, if you remember, the perfect storm. So the churches in Galatia are in the midst of a perfect storm. They're facing real hardship. They're being inundated with false teaching. And at the same time, they are just trying to please people. And so they're falling and they're failing and they have strayed from grace. And this reality broke Paul's heart. Right? He loved these churches. He loved these people. He helped establish them. And so it broke his heart so much so that he wrote this letter. And he even says, I wrote it with my own hand and I wrote it with big letters for all to see. So it's serious to Paul. He wants us to understand the weight that is on him as he writes this letter. And in the midst of all this, though, Paul has not wavered for a moment on the truth of the gospel. He has not been ashamed of the message that he has taught. He has not doubled back on the message of grace. He's even been willing to give a defense not only for the gospel, but also for his apostleship. And so last week we talked a little bit about why Paul was unashamed of the gospel. And the first reason we gave was because he did not fear man. He was not a people pleaser. Now I want to keep you to keep this in mind that in chapter 1 verse 10... Paul noted that those who want to serve man cannot serve Christ, and we listed three reasons why. And we noted that one of the reasons that you cannot fear man and serve God is because when you fear man or when you're trying to be a people pleaser, you'll compromise in front of influential people. And so this is a side note. I want you to just keep that in mind because we're not actually going to talk a lot about that, but, but you'll see it in the text this morning. Paul was in front of influential people and he was pressured to cave and to compromise the gospel and he refused to do so. He had no fear of man. But not only was he unashamed of the gospel because he didn't have a fear of man, but he also knew that the gospel was God's truth. We talked about that. It's his word. It's his gospel. He determines the parameters. It's God who established the gospel. It's his story from beginning to end. And on the flip side, it's not man's. So Paul didn't didn't necessarily care about what people thought of the gospel. He cared about what God thought about the gospel. And so he was unashamed. He was unashamed. But in the midst of all that, Paul is still defending his apostleship and defending the gospel he has preached. And so as he does that, he's recounting his time in Jerusalem. So last week when we left off, Paul was sharing, if you remember, his testimony. He talked about what his life was like before Christ. He talked about how he came to know Christ. And he talked a little bit about what life has been like early on in his ministry since coming to Christ. But here in our text, we pick up Paul still recounting his life, but he's jumped ahead 14 years. He's jumped ahead to the time he went to Jerusalem. And so it says, beginning in verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also, and I went up according to the revelation and presented to them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. So Paul is led to Jerusalem, right? At this point, he hasn't had much interaction with the other apostles, the other elders, the other churches in this beginning stages of his ministry. But after 14 years, he is led to Jerusalem. Now, what's significant about Jerusalem is some of the heavy hitters of the faith at the time were there. The other apostles were there. Peter was there, James was there, John was there. There was weight in the church that was in Jerusalem. And so Paul went 
because of a revelation by the Holy Spirit. So God told him to go to Jerusalem, and Paul went to Jerusalem. And so what's interesting to note is that this encounter in Jerusalem, now there's some debate about this, but I believe it's the account recorded in Acts chapter 15. So if you want to know what took place in Jerusalem when they were there in a little bit more detail, go back and read Acts 15. But what's interesting is that what's going on in Jerusalem is the same thing that's going on in the churches of Galatia. Because in Acts 15 verse 5 we read, But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the same thing that, the same problem that's plaguing the churches in Galatia was, pro, was plaguing the churches in Jerusalem. And so it's the same issue that Paul goes and he addresses with them while he's there. And so basically they were arguing, as we mentioned, that you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. That it was this linear progression. You couldn't jump straight from Gentile to Christian. You had to go and follow the Jewish law. You had to, you had to go through the, the ceremonial processes. You had to be circumcised. You had to keep the law. And then you could become a Christian. But this ideology stood in stark contrast to the ministry that Paul had been commissioned with by God to fulfill. It stood in stark contrast. And so remember, Paul was primarily an apostle to who? To the Gentiles. Most of his ministry was done among the Gentiles, not the Jews. And so Paul has not been telling the Gentiles that they have to become Jews before they can become Christians. He's just been telling them that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And he's seeing lives change. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he's got to figure this thing out. Am I running in vain? Has everything that I've been teaching them been wrong? Because he doesn't believe it is, but he wants to go and make sure. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. He takes Barnabas and Titus with him. This is going to be important down the road. Titus is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. So he takes Barnabas and he takes Titus, a Gentile, with him. And before he speaks to the full group of apostles and pastors and, and leaders and teachers, he privately presents the gospel to those recognized as leaders. So most likely that would have been Peter, James, and John. And so he sits down with them privately and he basically says, this is what I've been telling the Gentiles. This is the message that was entrusted to me by God that I have been proclaiming to them. And, and in all honesty, he's kind of just looking at him saying, am I wrong here? Now, he doesn't believe he's wrong. He's not really doubting. He's, he wants to affirm that the ministry that he has been doing is the same ministry that the other believers have been doing. And by the grace of God, the other apostles affirm what Paul has been teaching, that salvation was not dependent on keeping the law and becoming a Jew. We, we hear Peter's response to the issue in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 6, when Peter declares, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. That's very important. He goes on, he says, now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the same way that they are. We read that, sometimes skimp over, but that is a monumental moment in Scripture. 
when Peter stands up and says to all the pastors and all the elders and all the other apostles, we believe that Gentiles are saved the exact same way as Jew. And what he is saying is there's nothing unique about our ethnic identity as Jews. He is saying we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we believe that God is doing the same thing among diverse peoples. That's incredible. That, I mean, that, that, is, that is one of those, like, put a pin in it moments in Scripture. And so basically, in that, Paul's ministry is affirmed by the other apostles, which he is an apostle as well. But I want you to notice verse 9, because this verse is the verse that's driving our sermon this morning. In verse 9, it says that when James... Cephas, and that's Peter. So when James, Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Peter, James, and John, after evaluating Paul and looking at him, the Bible tells us that they saw God's grace when they looked at Paul. And so they extended the right hand of fellowship. And so as I read that, one question kept popping into my mind. What did they see? What was it they saw that made them say, we saw God's grace when we looked at Paul? And so what I want to do is offer you what I believe we see in this text of five marks of grace that the apostles looked at Paul and saw evidence of God's work. So here's the first mark of grace. The first mark of grace is changed lives. Changed lives. Now, before we start unpacking that, remember, I'm telling you this not just because I want you to look and see what Paul, what Paul exemplified, because I believe, as I tried to say in the introduction, that we're to live under grace, right? We are to be marked by grace. So as we walk through these marks of grace, I want us to not only evaluate whether we see it in the text, but I want us to evaluate our own lives and say, are, are, are these marks of grace evident in my life today. So the first mark of grace is, is changed lives. And so Peter, James, John, when they're looking at Paul, they would have seen the gospel changing lives in two primary people. First, they would have seen it in Paul. I mean, you have to remember Paul's own declaration of who he was before he came to know a Christian in chapter, before he became a Christian in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. So not, was he, not only was he just a Jew, but he goes on, he says, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was ex extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So Paul wasn't just a Jew. Paul was a Jew among Jews. So much so that his Judaism was known. He was killing Christians. He was persecuting the church. He hated everything about the name of Jesus. Everything. So much so that he took action and wanted to end the church. And we know that he was known because later on when, it come, when he comes to faith and other Christians hear this, they know who this Paul guy is. And they're saying, you're telling me that guy came to trust in Jesus? And what did they do? They glorified God because of that. So, so, so Paul was known. So most likely, Peter, James, and John knew who Paul was. He was Saul then, but they knew Saul before he became Paul. So th there was probably even a little bit of trepidation as this dude steps in. It's like, man, has this been like a 14-year-long ploy to get us apostles? And he's like showing up, and we're going to let him in the door, and he's just going to get us. 
But they, they knew who he was, but they'd also heard about this life that was being changed by the gospel. And now they're standing face to face with him and they see evidence of grace in Paul's changed life. They saw how grace had changed this man. But it wasn't only Paul. They also would have seen a changed life in Titus. You see, I mentioned it's very significant that Paul decided to bring Titus with him to Jerusalem because Paul was a Gentile. And so one of the greatest defense that Paul could have presented for the fact that the gospel is saving people apart from Judaism is to bring a non-Jew and put him before him and say, look what grace has done. This man has evidence of the Holy Spirit. He is walking in faithful fellowship with God. And it is not because he was circumcised. It is not because he kept the law. It is because he trusted in the finished work of Jesus. He trusted in grace by faith. And look at who he is now. And so Paul presents a Gentile to the churches in Jerusalem. We're trying to figure out whether or not God is actually saving Gentiles. And Paul's just sitting there going, look, right here. God has saved this man. He has changed this man. He has dedicated his life to making much of the gospel. And so what, what we see here is that a mark of grace is a changed life. And so as we evaluate how we are clinging to grace as individuals and as a church, as a local body, we have to ask the question, are we seeing lives changed? And are we being changed by the grace of of God, because God's grace will change things. Amen. We have to believe that God's grace will change things. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, the grace that does not change my life is a grace that will not save my life. Grace changes things. See, what Spurgeon was getting at was that it is impossible to cling to God's grace and not see real change. I've told you this before, but I don't believe in, in a stagnant Christian. I don't believe that it's a category. We are either growing to look more like Jesus or we are moving away from, our, from looking like him. There is no just standing still. There is no just kind of plateau in the faith. And so as we as individuals cling to grace, we should see God changing things in our life. They might not be monumental things, but they're little things here and there where God is growing us. God is changing us. God is, God is bringing about these small little nuggets of holiness in our lives that weren't there the day before or the week before or the month before or the year before. And it doesn't mean we won't have hard moments. It doesn't mean we won't stumble and fall in some of those same areas. But grace will change things in us. But grace will also change others' lives. And if we are clinging to the gospel, we should be seeing not only our lives change, but also others around us changed by the gospel because we are holding fast to grace. Because let me tell you a little secret. When you hold fast to grace, you will without a doubt proclaim grace. And grace changes things. And so we should see people coming to know Jesus. So let's evaluate. I'm not going to make you raise your hands or do anything. It's not a quiz. But as you examine your life right here, right now, is grace changing things in you? They could be small. They could be these tiny aspects. They could be the big things. But can you put a finger on work that God is doing in your life that he is changing in you to make you look more like Jesus right now? But then a question that we collectively, New Breed Church, have to be honest to answer. And I think if we are honest, we might all come to the same conclusion is that as we as New Breed Church are living and breathing and, and attempting to be a picture of God's grace for this community, are we seeing lives changed? 
are we seeing lives changed? Because remember, grace changes things. Here's the second mark of grace. The second mark of grace is biblical faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness. You could just say faithfulness. I like putting the word biblical in there. Biblical faithfulness. Look at verses 4 and 5 again with me as Paul addresses the issue of the Judaizers. He said, this matter arose. Again, that matter of do they have to become Jews before they can become Christians. And he says, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up. I love that. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Oh, that is a powerful statement. We did not give up. We did not submit. We did not bend to them even for a second because we would not let the gospel be compromised. In other words, Paul refused to compromise biblical truth when faced with opposition. He refused to bend. That is a mark of grace. That we will stand firm when we are tempted to stray. We will cling to the Bible. We will cling to God's commands. We will cling to faithfulness because it matters more to us than the opinions of this world. We will hold fast to biblical truth. See, Paul understood that he had one king He had one master, he had one savior, and he mattered more than anyone else. Paul understood that not only, we've said this before, Paul understood that not only was he saved because of grace, but he was to live in light of grace. And that means living a life of service, hear me, and obedience for the one who showed this amazing grace. You've heard me explain this concept like this before. I preached a whole sermon on it. But so many of us want Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. We love what he can save us from. We love the benefits that we can get because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. We want him as our Savior. But if we're honest, a lot of us don't really want him as our Lord. We don't want him telling us how we should live. We don't think we have to hold to biblical truths that we can live this life as we see fit. And we bend and we compromise on little and small things. And that is an evidence of grace being absent. Because if we have Jesus as Savior, we should want him as Lord as well. I heard it explained like this, and I hope it's not too out there for you by another pastor, but I heard it explained once in a way that at least stuck with me. I don't know if it's the most biblically accurate, but that a lot of us forget that what, what God is looking for is a bride and not a side chick. But hear me on this, because what God wants is a covenantal love and relationship, but what a side chick wants is the benefit of the relationship without the commitment of the relationship. And when we say we want Jesus and Savior, some of y'all look at me like, what's a side chick? I'll talk. (laughs) It's a different discussion for a different day. But those of you who got it, that was a good picture, wasn't it? You see, what God wants is not only for us to experience salvation, but God wants us to submit to his headship in every area of our lives, and that demands biblical faithfulness. We cling to the Bible. We have to want Jesus not only as Savior, but Jesus as Lord. And Paul understood that. He said, he matters more. He is my Savior. He is my Master. He is my Lord. See, what this boils down to is do we think that we can be faithful to God 
but live life the way that we want to live it. To again quote Charles Spurgeon, because he's a smart dude, he said, a person who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under some solemn obligation to serve Christ because the new life within him tells him that. Instead of regarding it as a burden, he gladly surrenders himself, body, soul, and spirit to the one who has saved him. Why do we submit to Jesus? How do we submit to Jesus? By understanding just how magnificent this grace is that he has shown us. And when we, when we focus and fix our eyes on this immense love that God has for us, it will drive us to be obedient to him because we see him as worthy. We see him as good. We see him as valuable. We don't see him as this divine past master in the sky, but we see him as this loving God that stepped down from heaven into our story to redeem us from the curse of sin. And we will want to follow him. A second mark of grace is biblical faithfulness. But here's the third mark of grace. The third mark of grace is the affirmation of the saints. The affirmation of the saints being affirmed, in other words, by other believers. Look again at verse 2. Paul says, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. This is what I want you to see because Paul says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. Paul wanted the affirmation of other believers that what he was doing was consistent with the Bible and it was consistent with grace. He wanted other Christians to speak into his life to commend areas of growth, but to 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 push him away from areas of failure, to say, man, you're stepping out of bounds here. You're going a little too far. He wanted and longed for the affirmation of the saints. In other words, Paul understood the thing that I have tried to beat into you since I have been your pastor. Paul understood that we need one another. A mark of grace is a longing to be in covenantal relationship with other believers. It is evidence that we want to look more like Jesus. Because here's the thing, again, things you've heard me say, the Christian life was not meant to be lived on an island. You are not meant to fight for your own sanctification by yourself. You're not meant to shoulder all of your burdens by yourself. You're not meant to weep by yourself. You're not meant to, meant to rejoice by yourself. We are meant to do all of those things in covenant family. And as we live in covenant relationship with one another, the beautiful things about it is that brothers and sisters will speak into our lives and tell us where they see evidence of grace and tell us where we are shying away so that we can grow in those areas. And we can't be afraid of that. We've got to stop, stop putting the guard up and, 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 you know, puffing the chest up and putting our defenses up when someone says, I see you slipping. It is a good thing. That is a kind thing when someone tells us that. But what is typical in so many churches and can be typical in our church as well is we want to be in relationship with one another when everything's going good and we feel like when they're not, we've got to put the face on that they are because that's what the Christian life is and that's garbage. Part of the Christian life is letting people see the nasty, messy stuff and not just look at it, but speak into it and to step into our mess to step into our sin and to fight for our holiness. The Christian life was not meant to be lived on an island. Even Paul, the great Paul, the apostle, the greatest preacher, the greatest church planner that has ever, ever existed, barring Jesus, 
understood that he needed the affirmation of the other saints. I wanted to make sure I was not running and I had not been running in vain. Some of us might need to make that same statement. Listen, I need to let some some brothers and sisters look into my life because I want to make sure that I am not running and have not been running in vain. And I want them to affirm what God is doing in my life or to caution me in areas where I may be falling short. So much so that the great climax of this text is in verse 9 where Paul basically celebrates the fact that they extended the right hand of fellowship to him. He longed to be in fellowship with other believers. Even the Apostle Paul knew that his Christian life could not be lived on an island, could not be lived in secret. It was meant to be lived in front of other believers. Here's the fourth mark of grace. The fourth mark of grace is vertical vision. The fourth mark of grace is vertical vision. Now, I know we've already looked at part of these verses, but let me draw your attention again to verses 6 and 7, where it says, Now, from those recognized as important... And then he adds, what they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. He said, those who were recognized as important, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Now, here's what's interesting. When I first read that, those verses, I thought I was going to have to change the point before it. Because I thought they stood in contrast. Well, Paul here is saying that he didn't care what they said about him. They'd added nothing to me, so how can we make the point that a mark of grace is affirmation of the saints when Paul's saying, I really didn't care what they said about me? Well, we've got to understand exactly what Paul is saying. Because as I I dove a little bit deeper, I realized that they didn't conflict at all. John MacArthur is helpful when he writes what's going on here, and he stresses that Paul was not depreciating those godly men or their eyes watching his life. His point here was that although these 12 men were personally appointed apostles by Jesus, so was he. He did not need their approval for his own confidence, nor did he need to seek their confirmation to convince him. And in that regard, who or what they were made no difference to him and his ministry. So in other words, Paul is not saying that their affirmation did not matter to him. He is not saying that being in fellowship with the saints did not matter to him. He is not saying that they as individuals and apostles didn't matter. But what he is saying is that his eyes were fixed on Jesus and the mission that he had been sent on by Jesus, so much so that if anybody told him that his mission was wrong, he would have, he would have ignored them. Because he knew, first and foremost, that he was sent to the Gentiles by God himself, and no one was going to change his mind on that. Basically what Paul is saying is that he understood that the apostles could have gotten it wrong. They could have misjudged what he was doing. Rather than affirmation, they could have been condemnation, but they could have been wrong. And Paul is saying, but he has his eyes fixed on God so much so that he knows exactly what God has called him to, and he will not waver in that. He had vertical vision. You see, I jumped ahead a little bit. He knew what God had called him to, and he refused to deviate. So let me caution you for a minute. A mark of grace in our lives is that we have vertical vision. We have our eyes fixed on Jesus and what Jesus has called us to. Amen? 
We know the mission that is set before us. We know the task that is at hand, and we will not waver no matter what comes. The reason this is so significant is because in our world, it is so easy to lose sight of that which God has called us to. It is so easy to be distracted by trivial things, minor things, secondary things, and forget that which God has ultimately called us to. It's fitting that right before we preached this series on Galatians, we look back at our mission, right? We know what God has called us to. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know what we are called to do. But if we're honest, how many of us can get so distracted from that mission? Life happens, amen? Bills come in. I'm not saying don't pay your bills. Pay your, pay your bills. That's biblical faithfulness as well. Right? Marriages get tough. Friendships get hard. People get sick. Our children act a fool. Circumstances in life change. And it is so easy to be deviated from that which God has called us to. But a mark of grace is that we constantly and consistently have vertical vision. That no matter what goes on around us, we can still keep our eyes fixed on God while we deal with that stuff. I'm not saying ignore that stuff, because some of that stuff you have to deal with. Listen, if your kids are acting a fool, please deal with that. If you've got bills to pay, please deal with that. If you have a family member that is sick or dying, please love and shepherd and, and do, do your biblical responsibility. But never for a moment lose sight of the fact that God has placed us here to be ambassadors for him, to proclaim that reconciliation is through Jesus Christ and we can be made reconciled with God. We don't stray from that. We stick to what God has called us to. And so a mark of grace is that we have vertical vision. So again, we'll pause. Let's evaluate. As you and I walk through our daily lives, as we as a church make decisions about what we do and where we go and how we move, the question that I have is how much of those discussions, how much of our daily life can we honestly say we are living with eyes fixed on Jesus and that which he has called us to? I'm not trying to condemn you. We just, we just got to have some honest evaluations, right? This was a kick in the butt for me too. It really was. But we can't grow in this unless we recognize that we might be off on a few things. We'll talk about this at the end. The beautiful thing about God's grace is that if we're off, off his grace is still there for us. But we've got to at least be honest about where we are as individuals and as a church. Are our eyes fixed on Jesus and all that we say and do? So not only is a mark of grace vertical vision, but here's the fifth and final mark of grace. The fifth and final mark of grace is horizontal hands. So we have vertical vision, but we have horizontal hands. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he means. Well, I'm going to explain it to you. Look at verse 10. Paul says, they asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. You see, a proper vertical vision will always play itself out with horizontal hands. Here's what I mean. When we understand the grace that has been given to us and we understand what a servant Jesus was to us and we seek to look like him, we will inevitably seek to serve those around us. We will serve those around us. I love the fact that in light of this great controversy that's going on in the church in Jerusalem, as they are weighing through monumental theological issues, because if they got this wrong, the church would have crumbled. And as they're dealing with all of this stuff, 
the apostles made sure to look at Paul and say, in the midst of all of this, don't forget to care for the poor. And Paul's able to say, I've made every effort to do that, and I will continue to do that. Because though we keep our eyes fixed on heaven, we live our, our mission out here on earth. And so we live with horizontal hands. We are called to care for people. We are called to serve those, even those, especially those. With emphasis, the Bible puts on those who are often overlooked by the world. Grace will cause us to care more about people than we care about ourselves. Martin Luther King Jr. points this out beautifully when he reflects on the story of the Good Samaritan. And he says, as he's putting his final thoughts together on that, he said, the first question which the, preach, the priest and Levites asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? See, what Martin Luther King Jr. is picking up on there is that when grace changes someone, we care about people more than we care about ourselves. And we want to serve. We want to love. We want to get down in the nasty, the gritty, the, mu the murky, and serve those that the world so often overlooks. When we understand what God has accomplished by his grace, we will see that this grace calls us to be reconciled to him as we are reconciled to one another. And that's messy sometimes. That means that we have to go to people that don't always act like us or look like us or think like us or have the same bank account as us. You know, one of the things that is still so mind-boggling to me is when I, when I look back at Israel. You know, God, God had a lot to say to Israel. They got a lot of stuff wrong. And at the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, you might remember this from like three years ago when we preached that. You don't remember it. But in Isaiah chapter 1, God basically calls the people to repent. He calls them to repent. He says, you, you've botched it. You've strayed from me. You've forgotten that I am your God. You, you've, you've, you've missed the mark. And as he's calling them to repent, part of that repentance is this in Isaiah 1.16. He says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, right? And so a lot of that is basically like, hey, get your life together which is what we often think of what repentance is, right? I've got to stop sinning. I've got to, I've got to fight to follow God and not sin. And hear me, that is a part of repentance. But God goes even further, and he says after that, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. In God's eyes, repentance doesn't just demand a change of mind, it demands a change of action. And he's saying, and that will play itself out when you stop serving yourself and start serving those around you. Learn to do justice, correct oppression, plead the cases of those who have no one to plead for them. You could sum it up like the apostles sum it up. Care for the poor. Care for the poor. See, typically in most churches, there are two schools of thought. Some would argue that, well, what our mission demands is that we just share the gospel and we leave all that other stuff out, right? We don't need to feed anyone. We don't need to clothe anyone. We just need to make sure that we are telling people about Jesus, and if we do that, we are being faithful. That's one hand. On the other hand, some churches argue that, no, 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 the, the, the mission of the church is to care for the physical needs of the people. So we have clothes closets, and we give out clothes, and we give out Thanksgiving baskets, and we, and, and we pay light bills, and, and we set up all of these things so we can meet the physical needs. And what's happened in most churches is they pitted those two things against one another. 
But the biblical picture is both of them married together as one. That we share the gospel and meet the needs of people and they don't have to be separated. You can pay someone's light bill and tell them about Jesus at the same time. You can have a clothes closet in your church, have a food pantry in your church, and tell people about Jesus at the same time. Now, we want to make sure we are doing both faithfully. But faithful, faithfulness to the mission demands that we meet real needs of people. James says it like that in James when he says that faith without works is dead. What good is it if a brother says to you, am I hungry, and he's naked, and you basically say, go, be well fed and warm. You've not done anything. No, we feed them, we clothe them. But in all that we do, we want to make Jesus known. A mark of grace in our life is that we will have horizontal hands. Here's a way to evaluate that. Simple way. Do you care more about your comfort, your ease, and your way of life than the people around you? Because when we care for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden, it will probably make us uncomfortable. It will probably cost us some of our way of life, but it's worth it because of grace. These are the marks of grace that we see here in this text, and when these apostles looked at Paul, they saw evidence of God's grace. They looked for these marks of grace, and we cannot forget that God has extended grace to us. God has extended grace to us through Jesus. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. We don't deserve what God did for us. We have to understand that our sin merits death and separation. It merits God's anger, God's hatred. I mean, that's a crazy thought. God should hate us. And yet instead, he gives us love and mercy and his son. And he sent Jesus to die on a cross to save us. And we didn't deserve that. And then God raised him from the dead, and we didn't deserve that. And then God calls us into relationship through faith and repentance, and we didn't deserve that. It's grace. It's a gift given to us. God has given us this beautiful grace. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we not only trust in his grace that happened on the cross, we trust in the grace that's extended to us every day, and we live under that grace. And so we have to evaluate ourselves and see, are there marks of God's grace on me? Am I living as if that grace has changed me? Am I trying to make much of it in all that I say and do? But let me end by saying this. Again, I don't say all of this to condemn you. We have to be honest with where we are. And the beautiful thing about God's grace is it never runs out. And so even for us who are Christians, even though we have faltered and failed, God's grace is still sufficient for us. And again, the message of Galatians is come back to grace. And so my call to you, if you are struggling and you are wayward, even right now, is the same thing. Just come back to grace. It is extended and offered right now. It is still God's free gift to you. And he's not even going to make you jump through a bunch of hoops to get it. He says, come, confess your sins, and I am faithful and just. Grace. I will forgive you of your trespasses. Grace. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's grace. And we live in that grace. Amen.